and welcome to the ninth episode of European Talks, a podcast run by the European Policy Center, a Belgrade-based independent think tank. My name is Dusan Pjevovic and I will be your host today. In this episode, we will focus solely on a paper titled Away with the Boogeyman, Reforming the EU Enlargement Policy for a Prompter Acceptance of the Western Balkans. To discuss this paper, I am joined by the author of the paper and the program director at the European Policy Center, Milana Lazarevic. Ms. Lazarevic, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let's jump into it right away and just try and break your paper down a little bit. Um, one of your main arguments is that the EU approach to enlargement needs to be reinvented by integrating a post-accession conditionality mechanism. So when I read that, my first impulse was like, hmm, that kind of sounds like let us in and then we'll clean up our act as we go along. Um, do you just mind elaborating on that idea and just help us understand what you meant by that? Yes. Well, uh, the uh, the idea behind uh, the proposal, uh, which is contained, uh, which is presented uh, in the in the paper, basically uh, goes back to the um, uh, realization of how difficult it is to build a functional democracy and a functional uh, uh, rule of law uh, system, uh, especially in countries uh, such as the Western Balkan countries, which used to be uh, socialist, uh, communist uh, countries, uh, where institutions were fully uh, dissolved and uh, especially following the um, uh, the wars which broke up Yugoslavia uh, let's say this region even went back uh, uh, much farther into the past uh, than uh, the central and eastern european uh, countries but already in the um, uh, in the example of the central and eastern european countries we have had uh, the possibility to witness um, that following their um, EU accession, following uh, the period um, when they became EU members, uh, especially in the area of rule of law uh, and also in public administration reform, many of the reforms which had been done, which had been done uh, before uh, their accession, they were dissolved and they started to backslide following EU accession. Uh, this happened because uh, the hard EU condition conditionality which was uh, very much um, present uh, before the actual uh, moment of membership it simply was not there anymore following um, the EU, EU accession and the fact is that the European Union uh, at this moment doesn't have a really functioning and um, effective mechanism for um, keeping the current EU member states in check when it comes to these uh, political and democratic um, uh, criteria and basic values on which uh, the EU is um, is based. So in a way, yes, it could be construed and it could be understood that uh, what I'm proposing in this paper is uh, uh, asking for the EU to kind of lower the expectation and lower the criterion pre-accession, uh, but at the same time to ensure that there is uh, a functional um, mechanism and, uh, and um, process for keeping the countries in check uh, after they exceed the European Union. Uh, but to understand this argument, we actually have to understand the wider context uh, in which uh, EU enlargement is uh, taking place. On the one hand, the Western Balkan countries are um, negotiating, uh, either negotiating EU accession or 
let's say, making steps towards opening new accession negotiations in a much more difficult uh, moment for the EU itself and for the democracy in general. So democracy is not in crisis only in this region, democracy is in crisis worldwide. And I would argue that the reason why in our region and in the countries which are weaker and newer and more fragile democracies, um, these, uh, let's say, these, uh, this backsliding is much more visible is simply because the institutions are that much weaker. They, are, they haven't had really, uh, uh, they haven't really withstood the test of time in a way. Yeah. Let, let's unpack another idea because I found it very interesting. Um, when you propose that, um, like, we should have gradual access to EU policies. And one of the examples that you gave was freedom of movement of workers. And um, it was interesting. Before we dig into that, I would, just, okay. I, I would just add one thing. This idea of, of a more gradual uh, EU accession, so more gradual um, uh, achievement of the actual membership benefits, is kind of the, the other side of the same coin with this idea of post-accession conditionality. So I'm not saying let us in in the same way that you let in the Central Eastern European countries, but then make us perform better by conditioning us and monitoring us after EU accession. I'm saying EU membership does not have to constitute, let's say, getting everything at one point in time. So going from a non-member to a full EU member uh, overnight. Even in the case of Central Eastern European countries, there were two significant, well, actually three significant policies where most of these countries uh, uh, did not achieve uh, full membership, um, let's say, benefits, and they did not exit, uh, accede to some of these policies uh, from, from the date of um, their EU membership. The first one, which by default is not uh, accessed immediately, is uh, EMU, so European Monetary Union. So a country does not join the euro by the moment of uh, EU accession. And the second one is uh, membership of the Schengen zone. So these are two, uh, two policies which already, although they are construed and understood as obligatory for the new, e the, for the new EU entrance, they do not exceed these policies by the moment of accession. Similarly, for the freedom of uh, movement of workers, which you uh, just mentioned, for most of the Central East European countries, there were transitional periods asked by uh, some of the EU member states before their labor, before their workers could uh, come and uh, seek work uh, just like any e other uh, EU national, uh, national. So we already do have a precedent that uh, joining the European Union doesn't have to mean exceeding all EU policies at once. My proposal is basically going taking this idea um, a step further, saying that maybe we should dismantle membership to a larger extent. By that way, we can, what I kind of refer to as the boogeyman, we can get rid of this boogeyman that the uh, enlargement of the EU currently constitutes for the public in Western European uh, member states. So we we have the um, the statistics, we have uh, the data. We know that in several Western European EU member states, uh, support to EU accession of the Western Balkan countries is extremely low. Right. So in order to, let's say, lower the fears that there will be a horde of... Um, uh, immigrants and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, workers coming from the Western Balkans and uh, asking for jobs uh, in their countries. As much as this is not, not an actual, f uh, an actual uh, fact, but right. this is the fear of the population, by decreasing 
the benefits which these countries would get in the first moment of EU accession, this boogeyman would, to, a, to, to an extent, be, let's say, eliminated. That Because, like, one of the main benefits, at least in, in people's minds here, is, that, is the economic side of, of the EU. And people kind of see it as, as like, uh, they have an idealistic image of what the EU is and what will wait for them in the EU. So I think my initial thought is that it would have an opposite effect here. I would, I would dare to say that if the expectation of um, the Western Balkan citizens is that they're all going to move to uh, Paris or Berlin to work and live once we join the European Union, well, then this is a very unrealistic expectation that we should get rid of right here and now. Uh, so economic benefits coming from the European Union are uh, from the European Union membership are many but they do, they should not entail actual emigration from our countries and i would actually dare to even argue that uh, putting a check and putting a limitation to the emigration of the labor force from the region towards the EU member states can be economically uh, economy wise be a good policy for for a while for a certain period of time what our countries in the Western Balkans uh, need to uh, do in the meantime is to find effective uh, economic and industrial development policies which are going to help the region catch up with the EU and, uh, let's say, reduce uh, the development gap which we currently have uh, with Serbia, for example, uh, having the uh, uh, GDP uh, which is only 37% of the uh, EU average, which is extremely low. So basically what we are talking about is a proposal which, in a way can also be beneficial to the Western European member states. But when it comes to communication, I would agree that communicating this in the right way would be extremely important. What I am actually more worried about is that people are going to tend to say that uh, this would mean getting some sort of a second tier membership right. and that we might get locked into that, this second or even third tier membership for a very long time. So where actually we from this region need to be very proactive and very smart is to propose mechanisms and to pro propose solutions which are going to ensure that there is a clear roadmap of how you get from one membership level, to say so, in uh, under quotation marks, to the next one. So that once you fulfill certain criteria and once you actually prove that, you know, certain institutions are functioning, that you have a functional parliament, for example, you know, and that the basic democratic institutions are functioning properly, which is not the case in some of the EU, uh, some of the Western Balkan countries at the moment, uh, that, you know, as you progress uh, on this scale or level of reforms, uh, that you basically almost automatically uh, enter and get new 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 benefits and enter new, either new policy areas or uh, you get, uh, I don't know, full voting uh, powers in the EU institutions, etc. The actual details of these proposals are something that really needs to be worked out by, by experts, by people right. who are not only, only experts on EU accession in the Western Balkans, but it has to also be joined, this effort has to be joined by... Um, EU law experts from the member states. So people from Brussels, from Paris, from Berlin, who are very strong uh, in uh, EU law and which are actually going to work together with the regional experts to, to make these proposals uh, more concrete. Uh, this idea also uh, goes very much in line with the overall uh, commission's thinking about the differentiated agreement, uh, differentiated, I'm sorry, differentiated integration. So basically the idea that in the future, 
the Western Balkans can be um, become more integrated in specific sectors, in specific policy areas. What I'm adding to this proposal is that rather than staying outside of the playground and watching the other kids play inside, and then, you know, we get a lollipop through the fence once in a while, that we actually cross the fence and we find ourselves inside. Maybe for, uh, for some years, we would not be able to, you know, play by the same rules as all the other kids in the playground, but at least we would be on the inside, not staring at the other kids from outside of the fence. And this is just a little uh, allegory that I, uh, that I like to use in, uh, to, 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 to present this case. But I think that there is a very powerful uh, uh, effect that the actual moment of acceding the European Union, signing the accession treaty, and starting to participate in the EU decision-making fora, uh, the council formations, uh, you know, uh, having, par- um, you know, standing for elections in the European Parliament. These are all very powerful tools also for the transformation of the society. My, my understanding is that part of the reasons, of course, I would never dare, dare to say that this is the main reason, but that part of the reason why um, uh, some of the leaders in the Western uh, Balkan countries are let's say, rethinking their options and going back uh, in some areas, uh, especially when it comes to rule of law, rather than going forward and uh, getting more aligned with um, with EU uh, conditionalities. I think that part of the reason why this is happening is that they are sort of weighing their options. Mm-hmm. The political cycle in our countries is extremely short. And I think that they're actually thinking, well, am I really going to... Uh, to give away some of the rights. And again, when I say rights, I put this under quotation marks because I think that political elites in our countries, they understand that when they govern, the state belongs to them. The institutions belong to them. So they're sort of giving away something that they see as their right in order to get some very long-term benefit, which is not even even certain. Because if if you look at the whole context... And this is where I'm coming back to why the context of this proposal is extremely important. When Central Eastern European countries were negotiating EU accession, they were negotiating to accede. They were negotiating to join. When uh, when the actual date of accession was moved from 2002 to 2004 uh, for for the 10 Central Eastern European member countries, which, uh, member, member states which actually joined in 2004, there was a huge, uh, uh, huge reaction. There was a huge disappointment. Why are they being moved for two years? So their accession date was sort of even locked in, in a way. So they had a certainty. They had a clear finale of the process uh, of negotiations. Western Balkan countries, even when they start EU accession negotiations, they're negotiating to see what happens. Right. It's, it's, it more resembles the way that Turkey has been negotiating EU accession than the way the Central Eastern European countries have been negoti- negotiating EU accession. So my idea, my understanding is that EU, uh, that um, political leaders in the Western Balkan countries are actually calling this bluff and understanding that this, you know, this promise of EU accession, this European perspective is too vague for them to give away all these you know, benefits that they have short term if they actually don't comply. So if the EU makes this moment of accession more imminent, and this, let's not kid ourselves, I mean, uh, joining the European Union 
it actually is a huge political drive. It's a huge vote, vote winner. It is something that is, you know, extremely useful for a political leader who is going to actually bring the country into the EU. So um, I think that by shortening this cycle, but saying, okay, you know, the EU has become much more complex, much more integrated over the past 15, 20, 25 years. So what do you say that we make your EU membership as a starter package to make it a little bit more shallow and for you to start from, you know, some sort of a membership minus, as I called it in my paper, and then to make a clear roadmap as you prove that you fully um, respect uh, basic values of the EU, that you fully respect uh, uh, rule of law, uh, um, conditionalities, etc., etc., that you gradually uh, join other areas and other, uh, you know, get additional additional benefits. And this also could be very nicely connected. And this is something that I really think we need to look into how this can be connected with um, the uh, announcement of the new uh, president of the of the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who actually uh, announced that there will be a much bigger focus on uh, rule of law mechanisms inside of the EU for the current EU member states. So what we can actually do is to try to pair up uh, these uh, processes, rethinking the EU enlargement policy and creating new mechanisms for uh, rule of law uh, conditionality, monitoring, post-accession conditionalities, etc., for the and for the new entrants, for the exceeding countries, while at the same time redesigning and improving the internal rule of law mechanisms for the EU member states. And what this is actually going to help a lot is that it is going to kind of eliminate or at least reduce this sense of double standards which could be felt by some people in the in the region. They could say, hmm, why did uh, why could Hungary join the European Union and now be a troublemaker uh, in terms of you know in the area of rule of law? And now when we want to join the EU, now you're asking us to be perfect. Well, in this way, if we join these two processes and we make it part of one, uh, let's say, two-track process, you know. Uh, deepening and improving the internal functioning of the EU, while at the same time we are thinking about how we can drive the Western Balkan countries' um, process forward and improve the role, rule of law mechanisms within the uh, enlargement policy. This way, when you make it a two-track, uh, two, when you turn that this into two tracks of the same process, you are kind of eliminating this sense of double standards, which uh, which some might feel in the region, and it would actually become easier for the political leaders in the region to actually kind of sell this story and sell this argument to the domestic public here as well. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, again, quite a bit in there. But I'd like to focus on, on like, uh, quote unquote, other geopolitical actors, because you touched on that. And you even explicitly said in your paper that it's a controversial idea that other geopolitical actors are trying to fill the void. Is EU the only game in town for us? Or do you think our leaders, because like, as you said, it's a long term game for our leadership. And if, I mean, if you're playing a long-term game, you want to be in power for 10 years so you can control everything. And we don't have that certainty. So it's like, it's, it, it kind of makes sense that our leadership wouldn't play that game and they would weigh their options and kind of see what they can get out of this. So I don't think that the, 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 the political leaders in the region, well, at least those that have some common sense, that they actually believe that, uh, you know, uh, politically we can benefit from other uh, other actors um, in you know being present and being powerful in our region. I think it is a dangerous message to send to the EU 
uh, one which is often sent, but one which is very, very damaging to our reputation and to our EU accession process uh, uh, overall. Um, this uh, this uh, reference to the presence of uh, of um, uh, other uh, foreign powers and other uh, foreign influences such as uh, Chinese, Russian, um, Turkish, etc. It's actually uh, also stated in some of the uh, EU papers. So the uh, EU Commission's think tank wrote about this in a policy brief uh, which uh, they produced for uh, the Commission President, current pre- Commission President uh, Juncker. Uh, and this is nothing new. I think this is, you know, a common, uh, already sort of a common knowledge and uh, sort of a n- notorious fact that other um, other foreign influences are gaining ground in the region. But while this is happening, and while we have to admit that, that this is happening, our political leadership should not be playing this card mm-hmm. in the West. They should not be playing this card, and they should not be trying to use this as an argument for our region to join. So this is why this is why I'm saying I mean it is it is a very dangerous kind of leverage and I think that it can actually send a very wrong message one which says basically well you know if you don't want us there's someone who wants us so <laughs> someone someone else who wants us so that kind of even seems a bit childish and I would really not encourage anyone to use to, to play on that card politically but I think that at, at, from from the EU side, there needs to be more awareness of what is happening, whether this is being done deliberately or it's simply spontaneously happening because uh, EU's foot is not strong enough um, uh, in the region. I really cannot make that call. I really cannot can, cannot say that I, I know whether this is, uh, you know, that I know for certain whether this is uh, a consequence of a deliberate policy of um, Serbian president or, I don't know, Albanian president or, or any other political re- leader uh, in the region or whether it is just a spontaneous, uh, spontaneous uh, consequence of the lack of or insufficient EU presence. But I think we need to be aware of that. This is why I said that this is a more controversial argument, not in the sense of whether it is happening. I think it's already a notorious fact that it is happening. But I think that it's very dangerous for us from the region to play on that card. And I think we should not play it. I think that when we call for awareness of that, we need to do that very cautiously and to sort of say, well, this is happening because... You know, we need you and you're not there, but not because we want it to happen. So in a way, this should be, you know, a very simple message which should come from the region. But I really do think that the EU needs to sort of mark its territory here in the in the Western Balkans and to make sure that, you know, uh, Russia and uh, Turkey and other other actors with political um, with political uh, aspirations. We still don't know if China has political aspirations in the region. It is very much uh, uh, suspected, but there is not yet any proof that Chinese aspirations in the region are political at this point in time. Um, so in that in that sense, you know, it's it's a bit more difficult uh, argument to make for for China, but still a relevant one. Why? Well, because it's not the same when China invests in Germany and when China invests in Serbia. Because Germany, being one of the strongest uh, democracies in the EU and one of the, one of the strongest EU member states, can actually have a um, uh, on, on a par uh, discussion with China uh, when it comes to loans, investments, and uh, whatnot. Serbia 
will just accept whatever the Chinese ask for. And what Chinese might ask for is, uh, you know, disregarding uh, uh, procurement, public procurement procedures, disregarding anti-corruption legislation, disregarding uh, the right of the of the public to know and to 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 have information about these Chinese investments or loans which uh, which are being made in in uh, in the region. And you know, all the other countries in the region are even smaller and even less. Uh, capable of actually negotiating anything with China. So in that sense, we can we should be concerned about what will be the long-term effect of these uh, Chinese uh, investments and loans on the rule of law and the quality of our institutions. Um, so I think that, you know, it is a, a bit more indirect uh, um, argument, but still a relevant one. And I think that, you know, if we are members of the EU, then we have the whole EU infrastructure behind us. So uh, when any sorts of investments uh, are negotiated, it's a different negotiation than when you're outside of the EU. And this is, again, why we need the EU to be strong and why we need the EU to find a way to let us in sooner rather than later. This was a good conversation. Thank you for doing this. Thank you very much, and I do hope that we will have another chance to discuss this uh, in uh, my discussions uh, across the EU in, of the, over the past months. I have uh, found out that you know there are people who are very much um, uh, in favor of these uh, proposals. There are also other pe- people who contest it for some of the reasons which you have also signaled in in, in your questions. But w- the bottom line is that we do need fresh and out-of-the-box ideas in order to move the enlargement policy and the EU accession process of the Balkans out out of the current stalemate. We are in a deadlock right now. The region is not complying and the EU is afraid of taking us in uh, as we are. And it's a bad moment for them. At the same time, we actually do need the process to continue. So how do we square this circle? It's an extremely difficult, difficult question. So in order to find a solution, I think we really do need as many fresh and out-of-the-box uh, ideas uh, as possible. And even, you know, outrageous ideas need to be put out there. And those of us working in think tanks, we should be the first ones in line to come up with even those outrageous ideas. And this is why I'm not afraid of any sort of criticism um, uh, when it comes to, to these ideas. I know that there are even some governments in the EU which are very much uh, currently um, thinking in line uh, of these uh, of these proposals. But as I said, we need to be also very smart and to make sure that um, any further development of these ideas also doesn't kind of lock us in into this second tier and uh, reduced membership. Uh, so we will need to be very, very much invested and involved uh, in any discussions about how the enlargement policy will be reformed. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.